You're with Sean Jung and Where the Veil Grows Thin, an exploration of the sacred moments of our human experience in life and death, joy and sorrow, birth and end of life. It's the unscripted instant when the heart opens, the face-to-face moments with the divine. It started with a text to me from one of our hospice nurses who was on vacation in Oregon. Her friend, who had called her, was looking for some help for his 15-year-old daughter, whose twin sister was very ill with leukemia. He had called Barb because he knew she worked with hospice and because they had worked side-by-side, responding to emergencies with a rural fire department. He wanted to know more about what we do in hospice and how to get some counseling for the family, especially for the twins. After a phone conversation with Jeff and his wife, Susan, I was invited to the house to meet with Susan and the girls. The family's home is on a mesa in rural western Colorado. Susan and Jeff have four children. The 15-year-old twins are the youngest. The twins have an older sister, Michelle, who is married with two young children, and Brandon, a brother, who is married with no children. The whole family works together, running a family business. Jeff and Brandon run a heavy equipment business from their shop in Carbondale, which is about an hour's drive from home each way. Susan and Michelle do all the office and accounting work out of the family's home in Rulison. The twins are only expected to do good in school and help out when and where they can, sometimes by babysitting their niece and nephew after school. The family is close, laughing and crying easily with one another. Susan starts to talk of the twins' lives, the presentation of the illness two years earlier for one of them, and the things they have done since to fight it. The twins are Jessica and Ashley. Jessica is well, and Ashley is not. All of Ashley's treatments and surgeries have been in Denver at Children's Hospital. My presence in their home is graciously tolerated and at the same time unwelcomed, not because of who I am, but because of why I am there. Signs posted as you enter the home caution anyone approaching not to enter if they think they may be sick or getting sick. There is hand sanitizer and a box of masks at the door as I enter. Unusual items to see in a home's entryway in a pre-pandemic time. I am told I don't have to wear a mask unless I think I am sick, and I am very grateful for that. Ashley is in a critical place with her leukemia and her treatments. She has received bone marrow once already from a much-loved but unknown donor. She and her mom, Susan, spent much of the previous year in isolation, away from family and friends. Susan was always with her, but that meant that she was not at home with Jessica or able to help Michelle run their end of the family business. Ashley's puppy, given to her as a gift two years earlier, is now relegated to the out-of-doors, no longer allowed in the home due to what he could carry in on his fur that might be harmful for Ashley. As a result, she has not been able to touch him in many months. After some time visiting with Susan and Jessica, Ashley emerges from her room where she has been sleeping. 
She is pale, withdrawn, and clearly wary of this stranger in her house. Her sister, before Ashley woke up, had talked a little about how hard it is to go to school without her, how missed Ashley is by the other kids, and how pained and helpless she feels watching her sister suffer. The family right now is in a holding pattern, waiting to see if her donor is willing to give T-cells again sooner than scheduled. Ashley's kidneys are becoming increasingly compromised. T-cells are the one hope the family has of hanging on to her, the one hope they have that she will go into remission and they can have their lives back. Susan and I talk about palliative care, the benefits to having a nurse on call for them, someone to help manage her symptoms whenever she is home, someone to call when they are scared. But the focus for them is solely on curing her disease. Susan feels as though even a palliative care admission would feel discouraging and hopeless to Ashley. It feels as though there is nothing I can say that will help this tired, worried, fierce warrior of a mom except even that little bit of help while they wait to see what Ashley's donor will say and, if it is yes, what it might buy them. It is fall of 2014. I leave their home with the genuine offer to meet again anytime with Jessica, with the schools, or with the family. A couple of days later, they get a call that the donor is willing to move up the harvest. Ashley and Susan pack up, say goodbye to their home, to Ashley's dog, and to all of her family to move back to Children's Hospital, knowing they will be there until January away from the home and the people inside that they love so much. They will be in isolation for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, hundreds of miles away from home. Three weeks into the transplant process, Ashley starts to run a fever and loses strength in her legs. Jeff is with them in Denver for the weekend. An unexpected and somewhat frantic call comes to my cell phone on Sunday afternoon from a discharge planner at Children's Hospital asking if our hospice can admit Ashley to our services if she were to come home immediately. The doctors at Children's are worried that she could be dying and she has begged her parents to not let her die in the hospital. I'm at home an hour from Ashley's home. It is November and a winter storm has just hit Denver. I call our executive director at home for guidance, and after filling her in on what has been taking place, she authorizes whatever needs to be done to make this happen and then starts making some of the necessary calls herself. It is Sunday, late afternoon. The patient is in Denver. She is not technically nor officially a hospice patient. If the hospital can get her home, she'll need oxygen, a hospital bed, most importantly, pharmaceuticals for symptom management at end of life. All of those things have to be in place before we can give children's the green light to get her home. And did I mention that it was snowing? While I'm making calls to local providers, the discharge planner and then the physician herself from Children's are texting me with requests and concerns and details of her arrival. 
They are calling and texting me because I'm the only one from hospice that the family has had any contact with. So my number is the only one they have. Two of our nurses travel to our offices 50 miles away to start the paperwork and find the resources for everything the doctors are saying that she will need. Children's Hospital determines that the only way for her to get home is by fixed-wing aircraft. So her dad leaves Denver to race home in the storm so he can be there when they arrive. There will only be room for Ashley and her mom Susan in the plane. The rest of the family has gathered at the house in Rulison, except for Jessica, Ashley's twin, who is over at a friend's house and knows nothing about this latest turn of events. One set of grandparents, Susan's mom and dad, are also at the house. I get a call from one of the doctors at Children's saying they have secured a fixed-wing transport, but due to deteriorating weather conditions, it can only fly to Grand Junction, not to Rifle. The Rifle Airport would have been a 20-minute ambulance ride to their home. Grand Junction will be an hour's ride home. An ambulance has been secured to meet the plane, but now we are having trouble finding a company to deliver oxygen to the house. They want to know if hospice can help, but before I can even respond, the doctor calls me back to say a physician friend of hers who lives in Grand Junction has written the order and has gotten the oxygen company to ensure delivery to the house by 6 p.m. Night has fallen, as it does so quickly in November when I get a call from Ashley's mom. She is scared, desperate, strong, and lost. She says Ashley has lost consciousness and is non-responsive. She asks if I can please be there when they arrive, and I assure her that I will be. Next, a call from Michelle, Ashley's older sister, tearfully asking if I can just come now and be with the family while they wait for Jeff to arrive and for the plane to come in. I am 45 minutes to an hour away, but still make the decision to stop in rifle on my way and get pizzas, because I know they will need to be fed. I arrive at the house at 7 p.m. Jeff pulls in just as I do, and he tells me the neighbors are bringing Jessica home. He's afraid of what she will do when she sees all the cars in the driveway, so he asks me to please wait inside with the family, and he meets the neighbor's car. As he expected, Ashley's twin is heartbroken and frightened. For the briefest time, there's a great deal going on in the house, mostly a lot of tears and questions that no one can answer. Then we all settle down to wait. The phone rings, and we are told the plane has just taken off from Denver. Ashley and Susan are in the air, alone with the two pilots. Arrival in Grand Junction is expected at 8.30. She should be safely tucked in at home by 10 p.m. The house grows quiet. Most of the family are in the kitchen eating pizza. I am in the living room, playing with the six-month-old daughter of Ashley's sister, Michelle. Ashley's dad, Jeff sits across the room from me, watching, worry deeply etched on his face. Then the phone rings again, and at first, no one moves. Then Jeff rises and walks to the phone, takes the call, and turns his back to me, and after a moment, I hear him say, I'm coming to get you. And I know that somewhere over the Rockies, 
alone in the heavens with her mom, Ashley has relinquished the body that has ravaged and fought her for so long. When this happens on a medical transport plane, laws prohibit the plane from then landing anywhere but where it took off. Susan and Ashley and the two pilots have turned around and are on their way back to Denver. Once they landed, I learned later, Susan was allowed to sit on the tarmac in the plane with Ashley to await the family's arrival. She waited for the coroner, and then she waited for her family. And she said later that it was one of the most astounding three hours of her life. Within 10 minutes of her call to Jeff, Ashley's entire family, except for Susan's parents, are in Jeff's crew cab, headed back to Denver in a snowstorm. We scoured the house for blankets, pillows, boxes of Kleenex, and sent them on their way. Once I saw them off, I drove a long and lonely road back to No Name, filled with gratitude for the time to process what this family had just experienced and what would certainly lie ahead. Two days later, I am honored to be asked to help officiate her memorial service. The family wants to honor her life, to help everyone know who she really was, not the small, frail 15-year-old with cancer, but the strong, powerful life force with which she had lived. When I arrived at their home the following Saturday for a service that was supposed to start at 1, the property has been transformed. Through the gracious kindness of the area schools, the fire departments where her dad and brother are both volunteers, and local businesses and friends, tents, tables, and chairs have been set up around the property. A sound system has been set up. Orange helium balloons are everywhere. Fire pits have been laid for roasting hot dogs because they were Ashley's favorite. An altar created in one of the tents includes a large display case filled with necklaces of colorful beads. Each necklace is about three feet long. They are hung randomly throughout a display case. There were easily hundreds of beads. Next to the case, a written legend explains that each bead represented a surgery, a procedure, an overnight in the hospital, or some other detail relevant to Ashley's two-year battle with leukemia. It was beautiful and so powerfully stunning that everyone who approached walked away wiping their eyes, unable to speak. When it came time for the service to begin, there were only about 50 people there, and Susan said, we need to wait. And within a matter of minutes, all I could see was a trail of trucks and cars winding their way up the long road leading in from the Rulison exit off of Interstate 70. People were parking in the fields along the property and coming silently by foot to the tents and tables until there were so many people I couldn't imagine how they were ever going to make sense of it all. The whole day is a memory I will have forever and one that I hope brought some element of comfort to this family. I wanted to share this story because it's the reason those of us called to hospice work do what we do. We have to hold this vision of what a healthy hospice organization can provide to a family in need. 
this understanding of why we have to fundraise, why we ask for people to volunteer their time, and why we ask our communities to help us stay strong. This family was never officially one of ours. Ashley was never admitted to hospice. I was the only staff person they ever met during that time. This was not about signing paperwork and documentation. Yet the hours of staff time and the heartbreak we all shared at the outcome are a burden and a gift we now all carry. Those who dedicate themselves to providing the highest standard of care for those who are dying and the support for those who love them wouldn't have it any other way. Hospice services are often behind-the-scenes kind of services. The nurses who drove to the office that night and all the people from hospice making phone calls, trying to make Ashley's dying request come true, never met her or her family. But in that brief time, she touched all of their hearts. Hospice means someone will probably die, so families often shy away from it until the very last possible moment, when it then becomes crisis intervention hospice, with no time to establish a relationship with the patient or the family, relationships that are built with trust and love, relationships that take time. I say this now knowing that when it is a child, no one will stop fighting in time to have hospice. No parent will lay down their sword and acquiesce to the inevitable, just as Susan and Jeff did not. And I will be forever grateful to them for helping me understand that, and forever grateful that I was gifted the privilege of being a small piece of their story, and then gifted once again nine years later with their blessing to share my experience of it. This is Sean Jung. Thank you for sharing this time with me. I hope you'll join me again where the veil grows thin. <laughs>